0: I have one goal today and it's to put today or this moment in context. And by this moment, I mean the fact that we're here, in my case, in Vancouver at this church now called Strathcona Church at the corner of Princess and Pender in the year 2021 what month are we in in September? I think I already said that. Like, I wanna put all of this in context. The idea that we're building a church called The Way Church, and there's different generations, different people. I wanna put this in context. I wanna put it in context of the whole story of God's church. I wanna take this moment, I wanna put it into context. And I wanna put it into context by giving you a picture and a promise. A picture and a promise. A little bit of time on the picture and then a lot of time talking about the promise. First, a picture. And the picture is this church building. Strathcona Church. Uh, I looked online and Googled it and there's some amazing pictures of this church that was built in 1910. And this church was built in 1910 as the first Swedish evangelical Lutheran church. And that excites me because my wife is half Swedish. So I feel like there's some sort of deep, profound connection in that. In 1910, a church that was established in 1903. Just think about that, 1910, 111 years ago. And I don't know how many years that church worshipped in this building. I don't know all the ministries they had. The ministry to neighbors and the ministry to the poor. Sunday school discipleship. One thing I do know is that they built this tall steeple on this building. And that as boats would come into the harbor, you could see the steeple with a cross at the top all the way from the water. And I just think about these people coming to the port of Vancouver and seeing the steeple with a cross on it. I might have spoken to their heart. And over the years, this church building has been the home of many churches. After it was the home of First Swedish Evangelical Lutheran Church, it became the home of St. Stephen's Greek Catholic Church. I don't know what the baton pass was from the Lutheran Church to the Catholic Church. It would have been a big deal at the time. It then became the home of St. Mary's Ukrainian Greek Church. It then became the home of St. Francis Xavier Chinese Catholic Church. And then it became the home of a Korean four-square church. Many churches meeting in this space, worshiping, studying the Bible, loving their neighbor, reaching people far from God. And then in 2013, it was listed for sale. And a Vancouver, a Vancouver woman named Marion, who was a social worker in Chinatown, saw that the church building was listed and had a conviction in her heart that a church building, a space set apart for the work of the church in this neighborhood should be preserved. And so she, on her own initiative, purchased this church renovated this church, and then set it apart to be a home for a ton of ministries. And so right now, this is the home for the Way Church, for Mosaic Church, for Strathcona Vineyard, for Union Gospel Missions, many other ministries happening out of here. If you go to the Strathcona Church website, you'll see the articulated vision is this. To establish a vibrant, Christ-centered, and spirit-filled community in the heart of Strathcona that this intentionally diverse community of ministries will unite to love, serve, and seek the spiritual transformation of the city. It goes on to say, we are a diverse community of churches and ministries working together as the body of Christ. We affirm, enjoy, and leverage our differences to encourage compassion, hope, and mutual transformation among the people from differing ethnicities and socioeconomic backgrounds. What a powerful vision. And this church then, not just the building and not just the image, but the whole story serves as a picture for us of the broader church. It reminds us that the church is much bigger than one congregation. As we gather this morning, kind of a launch Sunday of a new era for our church, remember that we are a small piece of the tapestry of the church in Vancouver. The church is so much bigger than one congregation. When I think of the story, a Swedish church, a Greek church, a Ukrainian church, a Chinese church, a Korean church meeting in here, I realize that the church of Jesus is way beyond ethnic categories. That the message of Jesus has found its way into every single culture around the world all throughout history. It's beyond denominations. It's beyond the distinctives that might divide Catholics and Protestants, Lutherans and Pentecostals. And the church is rooted in a historical reality That as we gather as the church today, we reach into our past and we're aware of the future. Context. My goal is context. That we would put ourselves in the context of the story that God is telling through his church. And I can't help but when I think about 111 years of history, and obviously the church is much older than 111 years, but this building, 111 years old. I find myself thinking, what about 111 years in the future? Like, will the Way Church be around in 111 years? To be honest, I don't know. I, I don't even, well, I was gonna say I don't care. I don't like when people say I don't care because like, obviously on one level I care, but I don't think so. It might be, but it's not the point. It's not even the goal. Even this building, like, man, I hope that this building is preserved for another 111 years, but we don't know that. We don't know what 100 years has from now. We don't even know Vancouver's a place 100 years from now as Vancouver, I mean, we don't know. It sounds morbid, but you know, nations have fallen before. We don't know what the future holds, but here's what we do know, that 111 years from now in this place, in this city, the church will be doing just fine. The way might not exist, this building might not exist, but the church of Jesus will be doing just fine. The church of Jesus in Vancouver will still be gathering to worship Jesus. The church in Vancouver will still be gathering to teach and follow God's word. The church in Vancouver will still be loving neighbors, caring for the marginalized, comforting the brokenhearted, praying for and standing with the sick. The church will still be an agent of reconciliation. It will still be light and darkness. It will still be a constant witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It will still be a beacon of hope. It will still champion truth amongst the untruths of its age. It will still be reaching across ethnic, socioeconomic walls for the sake of unity. It will still be placing people in loving family. It will still be introducing people to love of Jesus. The church in Vancouver, 111 years from now, whether the way exists or not, the church will still be showing people how to follow Jesus. Still be standing with the widow and the orphan, it will still be marrying people and burying people, and it'll still be living as a sign of God's goodness in the cities of this world. The church is gonna be just fine. The church has survived and thrived throughout the centuries. It's hard to imagine how a group of a few disciples who are uneducated managed to find themselves standing and thriving and growing against the oppression of the Roman government, trying to snuff it out. How did the church survive? Every century around the world, massive persecution, the church not just survived, but thrived and continues to grow. Massive intellectual shifts have shaped the history of our world. I think about the Enlightenment in the 18th century. You had philosophers like Voltaire that predicted that 100 years from now, there'll be no Bibles anywhere. There'll be no more Christianity. And here we find ourselves, hundreds of years later, and the church is thriving. Bibles are more popular than they've ever been before, consumed and read more than ever before, long after the ideologies of the critics have passed away. The church is doing just fine. Why? Why? Why is the church doing just fine? Why is it able to thrive and grow against great opposition? The answer, the promise. The promise. What's the promise? It's a promise that Jesus made in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. And this is it. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18. Jesus says, I will build my church. When it comes to a promise, who's making the promise matters, doesn't it? Like sometimes my kids will promise me things that they can't deliver on, but they just don't know. Who's making the promise matters. When Jesus makes a promise, it's good on his promise. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Earlier this year in June, Pastor Darrell on our teaching team, he did a broader exposition of the chapter of Matthew chapter 16. So if you want to know more context about this particular verse, you can go back and listen to that. It's interesting the timing of the story of the church that Jesus is speaking at. This time, the church of Jesus is 12 strong in numbers. He's got his disciples and he knows one of them is gonna betray him, so 12 slash 11 strong. And he says to this group, I'll build my church and there's nothing that all of hell can do to stop it. The goal is context. What are we part of? what is the broader story we're part of we're part of something that god is building we're not building it we're participants but he's the chief builder and our responsibility is to join what he's been doing in the past and into the future so much of the sin of the church happens when we forget who's building it and what's it for when we put our identity in the mix and we start grasping for power or control or impose our vision on the church, but it's not ours. We're not the chief builders, it's Christ's church. He's building it and it's his vision. I wanna look at this word church. I wanna raise the question, when Jesus says I'll build my church, what's he saying? And what could this mean for you and I as we live as followers of Jesus amongst a community in a city like Vancouver? When Jesus is speaking, uh, this is recorded in the book of Matthew, and Matthew was originally written in Greek. And the Greek word used that we translate as church is ecclesia. And ecclesia comes from two root Greek words that essentially together mean, in the most literal sense, called out or called from. And so this idea of the church on the most literal level, Jesus is saying, it's a people called out of. Gets this idea of it's distinct from. In the Hebrew tradition, the idea of Ecclesia would speak to the people of God assembled. The people of God assembled. But in the context of the Greco-Roman world, Ecclesia wasn't a religious term. It wasn't a religious term at all. Jesus is borrowing a word that doesn't have religious connotation in this moment to speak about what it is that he's building. And what that word meant, this word Ecclesia in the Greco-Roman world was a gathering of citizens of a specific city. So the gathering of citizens from a specific city together to conduct civic business. So it's the picture of a gathering, pulling people from a city and say, we could come together, called out from, to do the work of the city for the sake of the city. And so we begin to get this picture of the church as Jesus calling his own people to himself, called out from, to within that, to build a city within the cities of this world that God would build his kingdom with his kingdom citizens, that he would call the church to be his city within the cities of this world and to do the business of the kingdom of God. It's a picture of a people called out, but still living amongst this world, but called out to be part of God's assembly, his people doing his work on planet earth. He says, I'm gonna build my Ecclesia. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it. And over the next couple weeks, we want to look at a particular moment in the story of the church, one of the most definitive moments in the life of the church of Jesus in Acts chapter 2. And over the next three weeks, we're going to look at this text in order to find ourselves getting more and more awareness of what might it mean for us to be the church. And if you want to go there with me right now, go to the beginning. I'm going to read the first few verses and the last few verses of the chapter. It's a profound moment in the life of the church. I'll give you a bit of context for it. Jesus has lived and had his disciples' journey with him. He traveled and healed the sick and cast out demons and preached the good news of the kingdom. He preached his famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, which gives this countercultural ethic of the kingdom of God. And all of this teaching and life is informing his people. And then Jesus is crucified. And his followers who thought they were building something new together found themselves disheartened and discouraged. But then several days later, Jesus raises again. And all of a sudden, these disciples who found themselves scattered and discouraged were emboldened with a profound hope because they had met the resurrected Jesus. And so we have this bold people and they come and they gather and the resurrected Jesus speaks to them and he says, stay here in the city. Like they're ready to go. They're ready to do this thing, to build the ecclesia. He says, stay here. Stay here. I'm going to clothe you with power. Jesus is speaking about the promise that had been promised for many years before that God would pour out his own Holy Spirit on his people in a profound way. So he says, wait here in the city. So they wait. And then the beginning of chapter two, we see the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, God's presence, not just upon, but in dwelling his people in a new and profound way. It says this in verse one, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. It says suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other tongues at the Spirit enabled them. And the end of the chapter, verse 41 to the end, it's really compelling for me. So what happens is the spirit falls on them begins speaking in other languages. All of a sudden, a crowd begins to gather. And it says that Peter stands up to this crowd. Peter, who was just 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 weeks before denying Jesus, is now boldly, or denying, denying his relationship to Jesus before the crowds because he's afraid. Now emboldened by the power of the Spirit, emboldened because he experienced the resurrected Jesus, standing up to the crowds, boldly preaching to them, inviting them to lay down their lives and to follow Jesus. And it says in verse 41 that those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is a defining moment in the life of the church all of a sudden this small group of people encounter the resurrected Jesus are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And we begin to see this transforming effect as people are gripped by the message of Jesus, submit their lives to him. It says that 3,000 are added. And then we get this like verse 42 to verse 47, this like snapshot picture of the early church. And I just love it because these are the first Christians. These are people who walked with Jesus. So they're thinking about what they saw Jesus did. They think about the teaching of Jesus. They saw his healing ministry, everything. And then they just met the resurrected Jesus. So they're full of confident hope that he is the way, the truth, and life. And now they're animated by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so what does that first expression of the Ecclesia do? It says this, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. We get this picture of a church, the first Christians, a little window, a snapshot, and we see a people who are committed to one another. We see this profoundly committed community meeting together daily. We see a people with a countercultural ethic, the way that they approach money and possessions the way that they live their life is so in opposition to the rhythms of the world. So we see this, people who, and you can imagine, they heard the teachings of Jesus, and now they're convinced and they begin to live in that way. So we see this picture of this like, counter-cultural ethics being lived out in all the nitty-gritty details of their day. We see them impacting the world around them, signs and wonders and people coming to know the life-changing story of Jesus. It's a people who are dedicated to being formed by Jesus, like counterformative practices, part of all their daily routines, devoted to the apostles' teaching, breaking of bread, prayer, all these rhythms that are shaping them. We get this picture of an other kind of community. And if you read the rest of the book of Acts, you begin to see this bigger textured picture of the early church. And Acts sits in context of the whole story of God, in the Old Testament, in the Gospels, and all through the epistles. The whole canon of scripture begins to create a picture of what God's ecclesia is. And so I'm going to do something bold. Um, I s- submit this to you with some fear and trembling. I want to present to you a definition uh, for our consideration of the church. It's a bit wordy. Not of our church, of the church. And it's a bit wordy. I've done my best. Me and Chris and Daryl tried to like scheme on this together and wordsmith it. If you've got any ideas or thoughts, it's something you can discuss in small groups this week. But I want, if you've got pen and paper, pull it out. Or even a note on your phone, you can do it. I want to submit to you a definition of the church that I think is informed by the life and words of Jesus, by the picture we see in the book of Acts, the, the, the teachings of the epistles, and even informed by the backdrop of the story of the people of Israel throughout the Old Testament. And here's uh, our definition of the church. The church is a committed community submitted to and becoming like Jesus. Do I need to go slower? Because I know I told you to write it down. A committed community who are submitted to and becoming like Jesus living as a counter-cultural presence by the power of the Spirit for the glory of God and the good of the world. I don't, I don't even know if it's technically a sentence. There's a lot of parenthetical ideas there. Let me go through a little bit slower. It's a committed community, bracket, submitted to and becoming like Jesus, end bracket, who are living as a counter-cultural presence, bracket, by the power of the Spirit, end bracket, for the glory of God and the good of world the world. Next week we're going to talk about this idea of the committed community looking at Acts chapter 2. The following week we're going to talk about this idea of submitted to and becoming like Jesus. We're going to talk about counterformative practices looking at Acts chapter 2. And then in the final week in week 4 of this little series, we want to kick off the season with we're going to look at the power of the Holy Spirit that enables our life to live in this way. And so this morning just really quickly before I wrap up, I just want to add texture and thoughts to the language of countercultural presence for the good of the world. Countercultural presence for the good of the world. What does it mean for us to say that the church is a countercultural presence for the good of the world? A shorter way of saying it is a counterculture for the common good. This captures this reality that the church, you think about the language of being called out, is a people called out of this world. The church is other and distinct. We live in the city of Vancouver and Christians in the city of Vancouver are meant to be a people called out of the city of Vancouver, but not geographically removed from the city, but removed as a people but still amongst the city. So we get this idea of a countercultural presence that the ethics and lifestyle, beliefs and actions of the followers of Jesus, his people within the city, would be distinct from and separate from the way of this world. And this is always what God has done, is called his people out, given them his instructions for a way to live that would stand against the grain of culture. But the purpose is not just to be a distinct people for its own purpose, but as being a distinct people, God would use that for the good of the world. That God's great love moves toward this world. God's desire is to bring his kingdom power and restorative work on planet Earth. And the way in which he does it is through a countercultural presence not fully extracted from the world, but living amongst the world for the good of the world. The church, the people of God, are called to be a people of reconciliation in a world filled with division, a counterculture for the common good. The people of God are called out of a world of greed to be a people of generosity a counterculture for the common good. The church is called out from the world, filled with hostility, to be a people of peace. But then he would embed his people of peace in a world of hostility, that peace of God may spread in the city. And that sometimes people don't get the countercultureness of the church. Keller says this about the early church. Tim Keller says this. He says, the early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with money and promiscuous with, promiscuous with, prom, that's a hard run, there's a couple S's I gotta hit here. The, <laughs> the pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its bodies. A pagan gave no one their money and practically gave everybody their body. And the Christians came along and practically gave nobody their body and they gave practically everybody their money. So this is just a small example how the Christian ethic around sexuality is different than the culture around it. The Christian ethic around money is different around the culture, different than the culture around it. And the purpose of being a distinct people is to live in the way of Jesus as a set apart people, but in midst of this world for the good of the world around it. And what we see in the Old Testament and what we see in church history it's not uncommon for the church to miss its calling and point. To think that we're called out from the world and that makes us better than the world. Or that we're called from and that makes us enemies of the world. Or to be indifferent towards the world and all of these things are askew and a corruption on God's design. That we're set apart to be a blessing to the world. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham to himself. He says, I'm gonna bless you and you're gonna be a blessing to the whole world. I'm going to make you a nation, and you're going to be a blessing to the whole world. And the whole Old Testament we follow is the story of the people of Israel again and again and again missing the point. You are set apart for the good of the world. And the church is a people set apart for the sake of the world. And we're most at our best when we don't assimilate to the world, we don't become like the world, but we're a counterculture for the common good. I think again and again we see moments in the story of the church. I think if I was to look at the church in Vancouver, our own church, my own discipleship, I raise the question, have I become more like the world than I have become like Jesus? Am I truly a counterculture for the common good or am I just like the world? And so we can find ourselves tempted, tempted to hide and retreat from the world, but that's not the goal. The goal is that we be distinct people formed by God, devoted, I love the language of faithful presence. Faithful, faithful to the word of God, faithful to the way of Jesus, against opposition, even when it's hard, but present, not withdrawn or extracted from the world, but present amongst the world. Why? So that God could work in and through his church. Karl Barth puts it this way. He says, the church exists to set up within the world a new sign, which is radically dissimilar to the world's own manner, and which contradicts it in a way that is Of promise. Let me say that again. The church exists to set up in the world a new sign which is radically dissimilar to the world's own manner and which contradicts it in a way that is full of promise. In this way we see radical dissimilarity, counterculture, full of promise for the good of the world. John Tyson, in his little book, Create a Minority, which I commend to all of you. I think it's like $7 on Amazon, and I've read this thing at least five times, and this just captures so much of the imagination we have for what it means to be a counterculture for the common good in a city like Vancouver. He defines this term of creative minority. Creative minority being a way to describe what the people of God as a minority presence can be in the sense of positive influence in the city. And he says this, a creative minority is a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships knotted together in a living network of persons who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. And in this short book, he gives a lot of examples that just grip my imagination. One that stands out to me is a story of the Clapham sect, which is a network of families and communities in England in the 19th century. And they were people who wanted to practice the way of Jesus, they took it really seriously. And they found themselves dissatisfied with the realities of the world around them and unconvinced by the ways of this world and longing to see the way of Jesus inform not just their life but actually transform society. Most notable of the Clapham sect is William Wilberforce. Together, William Wilberforce who had, himself, who had a seat in parliament with this, co- this committed community of people they began to advocate and work fervently in British society and in parliament for the abolition of slavery. This group was responsible in 1807 for the passage of the Slave Trade Act and in 1833 for the Sla- Slavery Abolition Act that was passed. This group of people, this committed Christian community, living distinctly other, a counterculture for the common good, transformed society. This is God's desire, that we would live with a singular focus for him, follow his ways, and it would so transform our lives that it could transform the city around us for the glory of God. And the good of the people. A counterculture for the common good. That's what Jesus is building. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. My goal this morning was to give us context, to put our story in context of the story of God building a people for himself on earth for the glory of God and the good of others. And when I think about this reality, I just think about the 111 years of history in this church, building all the different churches that have come and gone. I think about God's story in history, and I think about his promise to build his church way beyond us. It does two things in my heart. First, it gives me humility. Just a few minutes ago, I was sitting in the pews of this church. You can't see them, but they're just to my left, and they're like those old kind of pews, and underneath, it's kind of cool, they have these things that pop down, for kneeling, like a padded little bench that goes on the ground. And that posture is the posture of the church. What is the posture of one who kneels? It's one who stands before God saying, I am before you, I have nothing to give. Only you can do it. Kneeling is the perfect posture for prayer and it's the posture in which Christians live their entire lives. Humble. The church will be fine without me. Jesus' church is gonna go on with or without the way. Brings humility, brings perspective. But it also brings courage. When I think about the story that God is telling, I find myself courageous in the face of opposition. Like I get it. I get the feeling that's like, what's going on in our world? Culture's changing. It feels like the church is losing traction. And I find when I think about the big picture, like when I'm just focused on our current moment, I can find myself defeated, but when I look at the story that God is building this church, I'm filled with courage. I think it presents an invitation for us to go all in. If this is what God is building, a committed community, submitted to Jesus, becoming like him, living as a countercultural presence by the power of the Holy Spirit, for the glory of God and the good of this world, I find myself saying, I'm in. If that's what he's building, I want in and I wanna be part of the work that God would have us to do in our time. I think this morning is an invitation for us as a church to say, we're not about building one church in terms of the way church, we wanna be a people who are building his church that will last way beyond us, will go generations to the future to take the succession of what has gone before and to carry that with fear and trembling and a courageous heart and say God is building it and I wanna be a part of it for his glory. In Jesus name, amen.